I gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you talk need about this. that. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. What? Welcome to Remarkable, a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. You're listening to Remarkable. This week, we're talking about B2B marketing lessons from Wild at Heart with special guest, CEO and founder of Talentless.ai and former director of strategic messaging and content marketing in NetApp, Steve Mutt. Lola! I didn't have much parental guidance. Baby, you better run me back to the hotel. You got me hotter in Georgia asphalt. Steve, how are you? I'm doing excellent, Ian. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. Excited to chat with you today about this truly wild movie. So let's get into it. Why did you choose the 1990 movie Wild at Heart? Wild at Heart was the first movie that I ever saw that was unlike every other movie I had ever seen. It was so visceral. It was so raw. It was just so weirdly you know violent and sexual and colorful and interesting that it it just stuck with me so it's it's a film that i go back to probably every i don't know maybe every five years i, I go back and watch it again just to kind of see what's happened with it and how it sticks but it's, it's just something that has stuck with me you know, more so than almost any other film i love it and you also had a career working at ogilvy you've written and directed and, and produced a feature film. You've done a few other things uh, along the way, so it hasn't just been content marketing. For a long time, I was the king of the cool job. Yeah, I worked in a couple of amusement parks. I was a tour guide at the Adolph Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, the world's largest single-site brewery. You know, I, I worked for the Colorado Rockies when they first opened the stadium, so I've kind of had this blessed career kind of doing a lot of different interesting things. As I look back, like the red thread between all that, you know, there, there's always been a stream of connectivity, of communication, of storytelling, you know, trying to connect with people in different ways. If you could write a job description for connecting with people through the power of storytelling, maybe that's kind of the overarching theme of the resume. And an early aficionado of the movie Wild at Heart. So Meredith, what the heck is Wild at Heart? So it's a movie about this young couple who are madly in love. That is Meredith O'Neill, our amazing producer extraordinaire. Um, and they decide to run away together, not just because they're in love, but because the girl Lula's mom has hired a hitman to kill her boyfriend. You want me to shoot Sailor in the brains with a gun? And her boyfriend's name is Sailor. Sailor's played by Nicolas Cage and Lula's played by Laura Dern. Sailor! 
And Sailor is just like very romantic, like just out of jail type. He was on parole and she goes to pick him up from jail. And he wears a snakeskin jacket and he sort of like sweeps the Southern Belle off her feet and away in his 1965 Thunderbird. And they hit the road. So it's this like very stylized trip to California, which is where they're sort of running away to. And they stop at motels along the way. So it's about their journey. David Lynch is the one who wrote and directed the movie, and he's known for Twin Peaks. It's based on a book by Barry Gifford. When I read Barry Gifford's book, I fell in love with Sailor and Lula. And it came out in 1990 and was super controversial because of its, like, sort of extreme sexual and violent content to the point of being, like, pretty polarizing. He wants to deal with the most shocking possible imagery. Flies on vomit, Fellini's nudity, a head blown off, cockroaches in underwear, <laughs> and on and on. The Guardian called it a film of extreme violence and ugliness. It was presented at the Cannes Film Festival where critic David Kerr said it was received with the most violent chorus of boos and hisses to be heard in a decade. But even so, it won the Palme d'Or, um, which they considered to be like a very controversial choice for the award. You know, I've thought a lot about this movie since it won the Cannes Film Festival last May, which uh, I totally disapproved of. And, and I think... To back up, this all sounds like quite negative, but I think there's something about being such a stylized movie and going to such extremes that really evokes strong emotion in the viewer and people really love it or hate it. And so when I was looking it up, I was like, how can I stream it? It's not available to stream anywhere. And people on Reddit are like, where do you watch it? Where do you watch it? So you have to have it on like DVD or somehow VHS if you still have a VHS player. But if you find something called Wild at Heart on Amazon Prime, that's not it. That's actually a video Bible study, ironically. So that's not the wild at heart we're talking about today. <laughs> you know, it's and I love your description. I think it's it's, it's spot on of what it is. Like I, I heard a description of it. It is a you know two lovers take a trip down the yellow brick road on their way to Oz, and they travel through hell. And so I think in true Lynchian style, you know, it's it's very episodic. Where it's like okay. They've stopped in this one place and they're going to meet some new characters there. And then they're going to stop somewhere else and they're going to meet some other characters there. And all of those characters are completely unique and different and weird and strange. You know, and then some are violent, some are just out there. You know, Laura Dern's mother plays her mother in the movie. You are not going to see him ever. So she's wonderful. Like the supporting cast is great. I'll send you a copy. Yes. Yeah, so. Meredith, you were also saying, or did you tell the thing about the screenings? So while David Lynch was doing some public screenings, he had two separate screenings where everybody left. Part of it was there was a specific scene in the movie where someone was getting tortured and people just got up and walked out because they couldn't deal with it. And so he decided to tone down that one scene. It still exists in the movie. Apparently there's something to having people be so just emotionally involved and get upset at something like that, that they just can't do it. But yeah, it's definitely a very, people get very impassioned about it. Wild at Heart, first of all, it's your new movie. It's an extraordinary movie. Yeah, well, thank you. Interestingly enough, so Rotten Tomatoes, tomato meter 65%, an audience score of an 81 for Wild at Heart. So it's not to say it was ever a bad movie, it's to say it wasn't to taste for certain people. What's so funny to me is, so this comes out the same exact time, essentially, as Twin Peaks. 
right? So 1990 for this and 1990 for Twin Peaks. And Twin Peaks also notoriously, like there's certain things that people didn't, didn't like about it, but it was a like massive cultural sort of phenomenon and extremely popular. And so it's just interesting sort of like if David Lynch never makes Twin Peaks, you know, and and still has the rest of his career that he has, you know, may, I mean, obviously he's like, you know, extremely respected and renowned. Maybe this doesn't have sort of like some of the cachet that it still sort of has, you know, looking back, I'm not sure what you think, Steve, but more importantly, that nothing was made at this time like this. And Reservoir Dogs, which also has a torture scene in it, which is one of the like iconic scenes, that's two years after this with Tarantino. So there's clearly this like shift in a type of storytelling and a type of creator and empowering those sort of people that were happening at this exact moment going into the early 90s, coming out of the 80s, which was these like massive action flicks and big muscles and ridiculous stuff and fairy tale endings and that sort of thing. And for whatever reason, this was something that Hollywood wanted to start investing in. I mean, it's still just like watching the clips of this. I mean, the acting, the everything, it's unhinged. It's crazy. But you're catching Nicolas Cage at a time in his career too, right? Where he's just getting started and he is looking very much not to follow the family business, you know, like to be a Coppola and, you know, and do all of that. So he's looking for roles that are kind of out there. Tell me how you started in the acting. I mean, uh, wait, did you, is that what you always wanted to do? I guess I had this need, you know, to do kind of crazy things. And maybe if I hadn't become an actor, I used to like the idea of robbing banks. Yeah. So at least now I don't really have to rob a bank. I can just do it in a movie. So certainly his name, you know, probably brought some attention to it. And then to the, these wonderful character actors, you know, I mean, Laura Dern was you know, like 18 or 19 when they shot it, right? So like, when you think about some of the scenes and, and the things that they, they created in there, it was really extreme given her age in particular. How old are you? 20. You know, Isabella Rossellini is in there as well. So some, somehow he gathers this cast to put it all together. Like you just said, like, you know, we're coming out of the 80s. We're watching John Hughes movies. We're, you know, Better Off Dead, like Ferris Bueller's Day Off, like all of this happiness and joy. And the, yeah, there's this weird desire, I think, for an edge, for something different, for something something that was interesting. You know? So I, I look at you know, the Christian Slater movies and Quentin Tarantino, like everything in that time, there was a, a definite departure. Because I think somewhere in the 80s, we lost some of the, some of the edge of the films that were made in the 70s, you know, like The Easy Rider and you know, some of the more controversial films from that era kind of got washed out as well. So it's kind of, an, I think, an attempt to define artistry in a new way. So there's all of this sort of new blood, new energy, but specifically like, he's telling a story that's like pretty simple. Two people run away and, you know, the parents hate him. Like it's not the craziest plot. It's not the craziest storyline, but the characters and everything is, is crazy. And there's some simplicity into the storytelling. And then David Lynch, as only he does, fills in the entire tapestry with like the most ridiculous characters you could ever possibly imagine. I mean, it's the same thing as he did with Twin Peaks, right? It's like a girl ends up dead and then all of this other 
stuff is boiling under the surface. And then there's confusion and despair, and then suddenly you're in love. It's just so fascinating. It, and there is certainly this strong tie to The Wizard of Oz as well. And I think that was something Lynch added. I don't believe that was in the novel. You know, but spoiler alert, the good witch appears at the end. <laughs> right, in, in a vision, like Nicholas Cage has said, the, the good witch, you know, kind of sends him on his way. The good witch. Sailor Ripley, Luna loves you. But I'm a robber and a manslaughterer, and I haven't had any parental guidance. There is that combining the f incredibly familiar with the recognition that what we see as reality, what we see as storytelling is not always exactly what we think, right? Like we go through our lives, we have these types of encounters with people every day. A lot of those people are probably really weird and we don't yeah. know it, right? Like we just kind of meet them and pass by them. But when you stop to engage and you know, when you're kind of open to the weirdness of the world, it changes how you perceive things. And you know, Lynch does not spend any time on banality. You know, he's he's all about the stuff at the periphery, the stuff on the edges, the marginalized kind of communities that are out there. But they're out there and they're they're strong. You have the chance of getting something uh, where you know people can see something uh, in the dark that they can never see anywhere else, and it's thrilling to the soul. That's the idea. There's also an undercurrent. There's like an organized crime thing that's going on underneath the, the seams, right? As a you know, screenwriter, as a writer, I walk around assuming everybody's up to no good. How are you know something, sweetheart? I've done something so bad, real bad. Yeah, wh whoever I meet, I assume they have a plan. You know, if it's late at night, somebody is up to no good. And Wild at Heart kind of said, uh, was, "Okay, yep, pretty much everybody's up to no good, um, and that's okay." All right, so let's talk B2B marketing takeaways. What do you think jumped out at you in terms of takeaways from Wild at Heart? Yeah, I mean, the, the, some of the things we've talked about already, simplicity in storytelling, but finding something within the structure of simplicity that stands out, that pops, that's different, that gets people's attention. You know, when we go to the movies, we have an expectation of what that movie's going to be. When I see marketing, when I go on LinkedIn now, I have an expectation of what that's going to be. If I see something in that, that's really, really different. I'm going to be attracted to that. You know, my eyeballs are going to be drawn to that, and I'm going to go to that. It's really hard to create that type of story in, in the B2B world, right? Because we're all, we're all very logical. And it's like, no, we just must talk about the problem that customers are trying to deal with. It was like, yes, we are, but we have to talk about that problem in a way that is unique to who we are as a brand and is unique in a way that actually speaks to whatever humanity our audience might have. I think for me, so much of the compelling nature of movies like this and Lynch is creating these characters that are just so bizarre that it's so memorable. And like, that's the thing, like when you said, when you first watched this, it was just like nothing you'd ever seen before. And granted, there's, you know, Comparing 1990 to 2023 is like, you, you can't do it because we've seen way darker things than this movie is. We've seen way more violent things. We've seen way more gratuitous things. So there's much more at our disposal now than there was back then. This whole world wild and hard and weird on top. But the idea that 
it was so different and so unique when you saw it originally, I think is, is a really important thing for content to think about of like, how could I be different? How could I be so unique? That's like, not like something you've ever seen. One of the things that we talked about for the little gifts that we make for this show is we're like, what is something that you never, ever see on, on LinkedIn? Like what's something that like you could scroll on LinkedIn for like, you know, a day and you wouldn't see something that looked exactly like this. And we were like, oh, let's, you know, use our comic book motif and have like multiple videos that are going at the same time. And if it just looks different, if it just stands out, if it's something that someone has to stop scrolling and give three extra seconds to be like, what is this? I don't know if I like it or not, but like, what is it? And like, you know, there's literal hundreds and hundreds of people that have a story of walking out, watching Wild at Heart. And like, that's better than nothing. It's better than being forgotten. How many people scroll past bad work all day long? <laughs> people walk out on B2B marketing content all the time by, by scrolling past it. Well, yeah, exactly. And, and like, if you go and you read the reviews, critic reviews, if you go look at the YouTube comments of this, it's hysterical because people are like, this was the worst 100 minutes of my life. Like I left and it was horrible. And then you have other people who are like, my favorite movie ever. This is the best. Rocking good news. And like, you cannot be everything to everyone. Like you just can't. So you have to pick something that is unique and try to do something that your competitors aren't doing. Go look at all of their content, see something that they're not doing and try to create that. Like there's going to be really, really good content because creators are going to get their hands on these tools and start building stuff that we can't even imagine from virtual voices on podcasts, synthetic avatars, animation. Like, you know, Runway has a tool now where you can put a text prompt in and it will create a video. So I can say, you know, put two people in a car on a highway in The Wizard of Oz and it, it actually creates a video of that. Like even now, I can't wrap my head around, you know, the work it takes to create something in the digital world is now, it's just, it's so easy. So in like five or 10 years, like who knows? To me, what I think it's going to mean is in B2B marketing and all kinds of marketing, we're all going to have to get better because you know, the, the story is still king. The characters are still king. And so the thing that you haven't seen before may not be this, you know, explosive visual or, or violence or, you know, whatever, right? But it's going to come down to the strength of the character and the voice in the content that you create. And I don't know how you adapt to that. I don't, I think we're just at the beginning of even thinking about that. But conversely, AI, I think it's going to actually force us to be more human in our content. Yeah, I think one of the things that we had talked about in our prep for this is this idea of like, what does David Lynch think about AI? Which is, I think we probably know the answer to that. But the second piece of it is, would AI ever make Wild at Heart in 1999? And like, that's the question. If you are looking back at what has been made, would you make from what has been made this thing? And maybe you could argue like, yes, you would or whatever it is. But I think that it's just such an interesting sort of like, place to discuss AI in the same breath as a David Lynch film, which feels like the most opposite possible thing where it's like a creator's vision for this thing, albeit very weird and disturbing and all those other things. But it seems like it is very singularly his. And I don't know the answer to that, but 
I think it's super fascinating. And I think that, you know, to your point, if this is what the new creator's toolbox is, it, you're really using something that's different. It's not making film in the same way that it used to be, right? It's something entirely different. Yeah, you know, Lynch is to me in such a league of his own in some ways. If you want a better example, you have to look at the feature film Seclusion, which was written and directed by Steve Mudd and is available <laughs> on DVD at your local Blockbuster. So you can find it if you can find your local blockbuster. I had a relatively simple script. And as I look at the creative process to create the movie that I did, if I had had like ChatGPT, I would have fixed some things. I would have done some things differently. I think ChatGPT would have helped me make a better movie. Could it have done it by itself? No, no. You still have to prompt, right? You still have to direct. It's so funny to me how much in, in marketing, especially still comes back to the brief, right? You got to have a good brief. You got to know who you're talking to. You got to know what you want. You have to start with that objective, that strategic objective kind of up front to drive all of that. But yeah, probably ChatGPT could eventually write seclusion by itself. And I, I say that knowing that as I look back, I'm like, yes, some of my writing wasn't there. You know, it, it's a predictive engine. ChatGPT predicts what is supposed to happen next. Seclusion, in some ways, is a very predictable film. And a lot of movies are out there. Watch Lifetime. I bet you ChatGPT could write a Lifetime movie because that's predictable. Of course it could. I mean, it could write anything. I think the question is, to what rigor does the creator want to create something that is unique? Or do they want to create something that is combining other things? I mean, in a way, right? Like, if you go write a story, your life's experiences are being put into that. So if your favorite movie is Wild at Heart and you also love the movie, you know, Sicario, and you also love like Ferris Bueller and you want to make a movie that's an amalgamation of all those three things, like you could do that and, you know, whatever, right? right? But you could literally shove that into ChatGPT and it could figure that out for you or you could come up with your own version of those three stories, which has to go through your own brain. So I, I think it's just a fascinating question of like, how are creators going to be doing this stuff in the future? And like, undoubtedly, a ton are going to be plugging it into the machine and undoubtedly a bunch are not. And when does it matter and why does it matter and what is the uniqueness of it? We've talked about on the show before, like at the end of the day, like ChatGPT can't tell me what Steve is going to do next quarter for his content marketing strategy. So like that type of content is always valuable. It could predict a content marketing director's content strategy, but it can't tell me Steve's. And if I want to know Steve's, I got to talk to him. And I don't know how it replaces that unless it takes all of Steve's work for his entire life and then predicts it. Maybe it would do a good job, but you know, then you get into also societal things at play and all that other stuff. So that's where I think that like content marketing and AI to be predictive and to be interesting and to learn from your peers, I think that that's where there's a lot of effort that needs to happen that's not using the tool versus the other stuff where you can use the tool. You know, I, I think, too, creatively, too, and, and this is true, I think, in business as well as in film, the distillation of complexity into something simple is one of the most difficult things for people to accomplish. I've seen it hundreds of times with, with people in the film world where they try to describe their movie and it takes them eight minutes, right? <laughs> so just, it's like, you've got to get your movie down to like a sentence and you've got to distill on the B2B side. If you can't tell me your strategy in a sentence, you don't have a strategy. 
you have a list of buzzwords and what GPT I think could do. And actually, I, I think we have a killer app and I think we have a plan here. We can build this app to put different movies together and kind of write the log line for it. Like what is the distillation of the ideas of those things? And I think you'll see that in some of the newer strategically focused AI tools where they hopefully help people get to the the essence of what it is that they're trying to accomplish from a messaging perspective or, or a strategic perspective. The rigor of logical thinking is not always present in the boardroom, and it's not always present in marketing. There's various levels of strategic acumen in there, and so I hope that GPT can help that's part of the process to make strategies more succinct and more readable and more understandable and, and more impactful. Or at least get you to the point where if you distill your strategy, then you realize it's not differentiated, right? Get it to the point where you're able to recognize whether it's good or not, as opposed to just having a laundry list of crap. Yeah, I think my final piece of advice of this sort of like David Lynch versus AI, this fight that we're fabricating here, is that like my advice to B2B marketers is what I'm doing myself, is I'm trying to look at the projects that would be great for tools like AI. We do this already with our podcast, with writing show notes, with coming up with headlines, with doing things like that. Where can the tool be great? And then what are the things that there's no way for AI to give it to you? And that is practitioner-level content that's forward-looking, practitioner-level storytelling, storytelling that actually happens, stories that happen in their actual lives. I put fictional you know, content in that bucket because like we don't use the AI for our fiction content right now, and human-centric, you know, conversational type things where you have to listen to the person or see the person right now to get the utility. So anyway, that would be my piece of advice on it. Yeah, I think that's entirely accurate. The general advice to creators, right, as I think about the people who legitimately know their creators and are out there, is go play and go experiment. You know, this is very, very early days in this. And there's some very, very interesting things right now. And it's only going to get better. And the sooner you start experimenting, the better. You know, and, and I, you think back like, God, they used to write novels like by hand, right? Right. And, like Microsoft Word, right? Every little technological advance helps us in a different way. And it will be up to the creators to figure out how it's going to help them. It's not like, OpenAI is going to like automatically make everybody create, you know, better. It's going to be people who decide to use the technology in a way that benefits them. And finding that exact right mix, that mix between what should be uniquely human and what can be automated in a way that you know, saves time. Like every B2B messaging thing I've ever been a part of, at some point somebody's like, oh, our technology will save you time to do the things that are most important. Like every technology out there, almost every tool, at some point, somebody has said, we make this easier so you could do this. So this is one of those, like for real, like this is making a lot of things easier so you can do this, but it's the this that you really have to focus on and turn into something interesting for yourself. I have one more takeaway, uh, B2B marketing takeaway from David Lynch's Wild at Heart. Use a road trip. Road trip is always a great story because they have a destination that you're getting to the listener or the viewer knows the destination at the beginning of the story so they want you to get to the destination and you're going to hit a bunch of crazy 
cool locations and weird people along the way, always. So you know exactly what you're going to get. And it's a great vehicle. And like road trip content is always good content for that reason. And we don't do it enough in B2B. So that's my final takeaway there. I'm with you on that one. Let's go. Let's let the three of us will hop in the car. <laughs> Take it remarkable on the road. Yeah. Yeah. We'll just kind of see. And I think, you know, again, still coming out of this collective trauma of the pandemic and everyone having been locked at home so long, get out of the freaking house and create something. You know, as much as AI is important, AI should be pushing you out of the house onto the road to go do some interesting things. It's interesting advice from uh, the two people who live in Austin and Phoenix. And uh, we're just talking about how they can't leave their house because it's 100 degrees. So it's only like 90 where I am today. Okay, Steve, you mentioned that if you can't say your content strategy in one sentence, then you're not worth your salt. What is your content strategy? To build content with swagger that delivers value to our audience and differentiates us from our competition. And to me, the key element of it is the swagger. Whatever we have, we need to build it with swagger so it's clear that we know what we're doing. So Steve, before you started Talentless AI, you worked as Director of Strategic Messaging and Content Marketing at NetApp. And y'all at NetApp did something I think is truly revolutionary by creating NetApp TV. This is like, for our listeners who haven't checked it out yet, it is a really cool content hub. There's all sorts of different shows and videos and different types of content. I would say it's like significantly before its time as it relates to like other B2B companies doing something like this. To me, it's like this modern, like multi-show experience, understanding the importance of shows, the importance of understanding like original series, how audiences engage with things like that. Y'all did the IT office, a NetApp parody of the office, a bunch of really cool stuff. You can go to netapp.tv to learn more, check it out. Steve, why did y'all make NetApp TV and how would you sort of categorize like this next wave of like what this type of thing can be for other companies? You know, the way people consume content and the way they consume information has changed and does change. And people like video content. You know, they like to plug in. They like podcast content. They like that audio content. They like to be given that choice. And NetApp TV was a way to sort of compartmentalize that and kind of have that vehicle to get there. When you look at the stories that we want to tell as a business, like those stories are more complicated now. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a lot more to them. And over the last, you know, 20 years, I can't tell you how many one-off videos we've done. Do the video, post it on the website, and it disappears. But now, you know, you create a repeatable format that people respond to, right? Like, you know, the IT office was the most binged content we've ever had. Like how, how often in B2B do you get somebody to watch one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight videos in a row? It doesn't happen. Every time people come to me saying they want to do videos now, I'm like, look, what's the series? Like, what is the thing that people are going to want to come back to and make it bingeable? And it's got to be a mix. Like it can't just be talking heads talking about storage. Like the IT office is essentially a ransomware story. And ultimately gets across the idea that, you know, hey, we can protect you from ransomware, but we don't hit you over the head with the product message and a call to action at the end of the video. That was one of the big insights for the last five years for me was nobody watches anything to the end anymore. We have no attention span. And what do B2B marketers do? Everybody puts the call to action at the end of the video. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't do it. Put it at the beginning. Put it somewhere else. 
or don't have one, right? Like, don't even worry about it. But think about, it's not a call to action. It's a cliffhanger to the next piece of content. Yeah, like, what is that cliffhanger that gets you to come back for more and get you to recognize the value of what's being created there? It's not a call to action. It's a cliffhanger. That is prime time stuff, Steve. I love that. You know, we live this world because this is what we do for people is make these shows. We have a bunch of customers that have a bunch of different shows. We just see this, you know, bearing out in real time with our customers. But I mean, the part of the reason why we're doing this in the first place is because this is already where a consumer is. Like if you look at a company like The Ringer, which, you know, was bought by Spotify, but before that, they were a website with like a couple podcasts and they immediately became a podcast company with all these other shows and built like a network of shows. And all of these shows are like hyper different, hyper, hyper, hyper niche type mm-hmm. shows. And like that is the future. It is the present. It is like what people are doing now. They're doing it on Discord threads. They're doing it on their shows. I was at my dentist yesterday, new dentist. It's like, what do you do for work? I'm like, I make podcasts. She's like, oh my gosh, I love podcasts. Which ones do you make? I was like, well, which ones do you like? Maybe I make some of them. She's like, oh, I only listen to dentist podcasts. <laughs> and I was like, I wanted to like stand up in the chair and like shout hooray. Because I'm like, yes, this is it, right? This is like what happens. Dentists like dentist podcasts. And it's like, this is the sort of stuff where it's like, I feel like I'm crazy yelling into the void sometimes. I meet someone like you, Steve, where we talk about NetApp TV and you're like, oh, the, the IT office was our most binge thing ever. And then you go, well, why don't more people make stuff considering it gets the most binge thing ever? It's like, oh, well, there's no business appetite at company X or company Y to make that type of content. It's like, well, I'm showing you that NetApp's best thing they ever made and they actually make good stuff was this. Then like, why aren't you doing that? What's the answer? Why? Like, is it just easier to buy more Google ads? Like, I don't understand. Yeah, it's that we, we have been so conditioned by the science side of marketing, by the data side of marketing, that you know, the marketing automation platforms and the targeting and the, the, all of this has taken over the last few years. And it's also rigid and it is also logical. And if you come up with a solution outside of the logical solution, then people look at it the wrong way. But what that also does is the fact that you've come to that conclusion means that everybody else is probably also going to come to that same conclusion. And so everybody does the same thing because they're working with the same set of data. You really need to look at what's happened in the past and do the opposite or do something different, do something off to the side, right? Like what has worked in the past is not going to work in the future every time. You have to go outside of that. And it's hard because people are used to a playbook that they've been with all along. Yeah, totally agree. It's just like, this is the playbook. This is how it's been. I wish that people took a portfolio approach to the way that they make investments in their content in a way that you could get outsized returns from single series and pieces of content. And if you're creating serialized content, it can compound over time. When you only create one-offs, it's much harder to do that. I'm not saying like you need to make an entire portfolio of your content marketing is all parodies. Like that's not the lesson there, but it's like maybe doing them more often or trying to find some creative angle to cut through the noise, to rise above all of the noise 
is a good thing to do. It's like shifting from trying to build a one-off wild at heart, like the perfect movie, to building a, a series, to building a Twin Peaks. Right. You know, Twin Peaks, hours and hours and hours and hours of content. And that content is, you know, essentially branded as Twin Peaks content. B2B can do that every day of the week if they want to, if they thought about it in that way. Perfectly said the perfect ending to this episode. Steve, awesome having you on the show. Thanks for chatting. Go create, maybe don't create Wild at Heart, but, but go create, go create more Twin Peaks. Steve, any final thoughts, anything to plug? Yeah, check out David Lynch on YouTube and get his weekly weather report and, you know, keep an eye out for this startup that I've been working on, Talentless AI. We're building content with AI tools and it's going to be fun and it's going to be exciting. Thank you guys so much. Very happy to be on the show and it's been great. Yeah, we're excited to follow along with all of the cool stuff that you're doing with AI. Please send us stuff. We'll we'll share it with, with the rest of the remarkable uh, community here. Thanks again, Steve. Thank you, guys. Love me tender. Love me sweet. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise. <laughs>